Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There's an election this weekend that has even more candidates than Chicago's mayoral election. Nigeria's presidential election has around 70 candidates. But the race in Nigeria is expected to narrow to a blessedly simple two-man race. And those two candidates have a very different idea about how Nigeria should be organized and very different styles. With me to talk about the elections coming up this weekend in Nigeria is Clement Adibe. He's professor of political science at DePaul University. Good to talk to you, Clement. Thank you very much, Jerome. How are you? I'm not too bad. Yourself? Thanks. Awesome. Thanks for hosting this. I am glad to talk about Nigeria, and I'm curious about how Nigeria got to a place with 70 presidential candidates. We are all happy that Nigeria's or that Africa's most populous country is having regular elections and is a democracy, but 70 candidates seems like a lot. Yeah, but it doesn't matter very much. It's a two-party race, as you said in your intro, is between the PDP and the APC. But you know the good thing? We really should be celebrating this because this is the 20th anniversary of Nigeria's transition to democracy. And this will be the sixth consecutive presidential election since 1999. So it's, it's really a great thing. Um, and, and the beauty of this time is that we've got some young candidates, so you can see the future, actually, really young candidates who are not politicals. They don't have much background in politics, so they are not going to win. But they've put their, you know, they've, they've stepped up, so that's a good thing. Uh, well, let's talk about the candidates, the old guard candidates that are, you know, likely to win, the two candidates. And, you know, they sound like completely different options for people who are voting. Um, one of the candidates, Atiku Abubakar, seems to favor a decentralized system in Nigeria and thinks this would be more effective. And this is a perennial discussion in Nigeria. It's very centralized and the oil revenue is distributed from a central government. But if Atiku Abubakar uh, becomes president of Nigeria, he might do things differently. Um, can you talk about that a little? That's a promise, and it's a very good promise, I think. Uh, but Buhari also promised that in 2015. He was <laughs> going to decentralize. He was going to reform. Um, he ended up being extremely conservative and pro-status quo. Um, when you look at how Atiku launched his campaign, it's, it's actually different from different, uh, very significantly from what others have done. He is very intellectually rich. He has a platform. His policy document is focused on creating jobs, growing the economy, addressing regional imbalances, and restructuring Nigeria uh, in plain text. And it's really beautiful. Um, if he wins, will he do it? Well, that's a different thing. But at, at, at least from a policy perspective, he sounds fundamentally different 
from uh, uh, the, the current president. Um, but the problem also is, <laughs> I mean, PMB, uh, to his credit, he's never been one to promise a lot. Uh, in 2015, he ran on, on the platform of anti-corruption. And in 2019, it hasn't been very different. He's going to fight corruption. So, so in that sense, I think the, 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 the difference between the two candidates is really very substantial. But there are others also who say they are not very different. I mean, they are about this, uh, the same age, uh, plus or minus a few years. Um, they come from the same establishment. Um, they are both very rich. Uh, they've been around for a very long time. And as folks who also say, they, they belong to, quote unquote, the old generation. So in that sense, that, that there isn't much difference. And that, that's actually my biggest fear, that, that people are, are resigned to the possibility that there isn't going to be much change between them. And therefore, maybe their vote doesn't really matter because it's the same Anyway, I mean, that's the general view you get when you you listen to young people or you read social media comments. Um, so I, I, I hope that's not the case, that there is a difference, at least in style and potentially in substance between the two candidates. Well, if you've got, you know, uh, 70 candidates to choose from and you mentioned that there's some good young ones in there, it will we see somebody rise up and maybe if they don't win, we will see some kind of new voice in in political life in Nigeria that is young and does look different and have different ideas come up? Well, that, that's the hope. Um, more Gallo, for instance, who is more of a, a, a technical hand. He served uh, uh, in the Nigerian Central Bank um, and had a very distinguished career, I think, by most accounts. Um, he's He's someone to, to, to look at for that. Then Shore, who is really an outsider, outsider, um, hasn't been in government, publishes an online uh, newspaper uh, that has uh, uh, probably let the lead off a lot of scandals uh, for quite a while now, uh, based actually in the U.S., went back home to do this. He's young. He's very refreshing, highly energetic. Um, yeah. Those are very hopeful signs. Are they going to win? No. Are they likely even to emerge in the top tier um, four years from now? I, I doubt it. I mean, you know, and having said that, in fact, I think this election, as, as important as it is, every, every presidential election in Nigeria is important. It, 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 the, the real election is in 2023. This is a prelude to 2023. And the reason is that um, constitutionally, if Muhammad Buhari wins, he can't run again. Um, if Atiku Abubakar wins, he has promised, I mean, we heard that from a passenger, but, you know, Atiku is not a passenger. He has promised that he's going to run a single term. And, and, and by agreement, if not design, at least some consensus, elite consensus, the presidency is supposed to move to the southeast, predominantly Igbos, to produce the next president for 2023. So, I mean, just to, just to refocus on that for a second, it, yeah. traditionally they swap between the North and the South, yes. and both these exactly. candidates are from the North this time. Yes. So, and so that would be when, what would happen in 2023, you would be a Southerner who, uh, who, who is expected to win? Well, not only a Southerner, he's going to be a Southerner from the Southeast 
predominantly Igbo. Well, the reason being, uh, Olusegun or Basinger is from the south, but he's from the southwest. So he ruled for eight years. Um, then he went back to northern Nigeria, Yaradua from Katsina, same home state as uh, President Muhammad Buhari won. Uh, and then he died in office and was succeeded by a southern vice president who went on to then win a, a full term. But he's from the south. South. So, so technically, the, 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 the real realignment then takes place in 2023 when it comes back to the south after the north has done uh, two terms. Uh, of 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 presidential office. So so, um, Mogalo is now putting his name right there, um, and then you've got Pito B, who is the vice presidential candidate uh, for uh, Atiku Abubakar. I mean that he, he was already a governor, served two terms, so his name is out there, and and you can expect many more. So in terms of the young generation, I, I think the point I'm trying to make is that we're going to have a real shift. Either geographically or also demographically, uh, we're going to see at least the potential uh, of that happening in 2023 is, is quite high. I want to ask a question about economic anxiety and oil in Nigeria. Since uh, oil seems to be providing so much of the budget, uh, is when you factor that into what you're talking about, the north, the south, the, whether we become, uh, you know, a, uh, you know, a more consolidated country or spread the power, um, how do how do you see l- low oil prices? <laughs> and that seems to be what is going on, uh, kind of factoring into all the, the. It seems to create a lot of pressure politically. Oh God, absolutely. And I think um, whether you love Muhammad Buhari, you champion his candidacy or not, you're going to have to admit that his economic performance has not been good. Uh, he promised to diversify the economy. Granted, he's not the only one who's made that promise, but he, he appeared. I mean, he's, he'd run for office at least four times before he won. And you would have thought, okay, he, he's got it. Uh, that did not happen. The economy is still very heavily dependent on oil. And as you and I know, Jerome, uh, uh, there are technical reasons why um, the pressure on oil prices uh, will remain intense for the foreseeable future. One of them is that the large economies like the U.S. Uh, and Western Europe are moving increasingly away from oil, and they become more and more efficient. People drive less. When they do drive, they're driving more and more efficient cars. Um, and then you have the emerging economies that are slowing down. But even when they're not slowing down, I mean, think of China, think of India, they're going very high tech. I hear China has uh, probably is making the largest investment in green economy now. Um, and then and then you think of uh, the fracking technology. There's so much oil out there in the market <laughs> that the prices of oil are going to be very low for quite a while. I I. But it gets us back to what whoever wins, what they really need to do. And that is to really tap into the, the, the human resources that, that are dotted all over Nigeria, to rely less on natural resources. Um, you see um, tech incubators in Lagos uh, and, and, and Port Harcourt and, and Aba and traders and all of that. They're doing great things. They need government support. Uh, but, but they need solid infrastructure. Uh, by the last count, Nigerian economy grew very substantially in the first 15 years of, of democratic return, almost to the point of becoming the largest economy in Africa. And that is even including South Africa. But much of that was because a new sector opened up, telecoms. 
can you imagine what would happen to the Nigerian economy if the electricity sector took off? Right? Um, the, the ramifications would be enormous. They've always talked about agriculture and all of that. That, that. that probably has some ways to go. But none of that will happen unless the electricity sector has been taken care of. And it hasn't. Bray has said, oh, God, it is corruption and all of that. It's not just corruption. Yeah, there's leakage here and there. Part of it is just simply policy. Now, what they did with the electricity sector, which is very typical of very bad policy, is they said, okay, foreign, um, mostly foreign uh, companies can generate power, but the government of Nigeria will buy the power and set the price for the sale of the power. You can't run a business like that. If the government has that kind of power, you might as well generate electricity and distribute. So, so basically, they're not generating electricity. So they need to hands that sector off. And the reason they are not doing it is because they want their persons and their interests uh, are protected rather than really liberalizing the sector. I think that's what the next administration is going to have to do. But they can rely on oil. You can squeeze Niger Delta as much as you can. They can pump as much oil as they can. And they are pumping an extraordinary amount of oil. But the price is nowhere close to, to uh, uh, meeting the needs that they have. Well, do you, from what I hear, the polls say that it's a dead heat between the two likely winners, Mohamedou Buhari, the incumbent, and Atiku Abubakar, the challenger. Uh, do, you have a, do you have a feeling that the electorate is willing to take a chance on new leadership here, or, or are they going to stick, stick with the horse that they're riding? That's a great question. Um, Polls are very unreliable. I've looked at a few, uh, and they, they predict, uh, well, I mean, I heard the international poll said uh, it's a tight race, which for an opposition party, that has got to be very good news. Uh, the domestic poll that I saw gave Buhari the chance to win. Um, I don't know how tight they are. My problem is the way Muhammad Buhari's government has handled this election, or at least the process leading up to it, makes me think if he wins, he loses. If he loses, he loses. And the reason is this. He fired the country's chief justice two yep. weeks before the election. Yep, that was a big deal. Um, yeah, that's a big deal. It hasn't happened in Nigeria. Uh, why couldn't you wait you know, until after the elections? And then the new chief justice that he appointed subsequently set up electoral appeal committees, tribunals, overnight, yeah. right? 24 hours. Nigeria, is that efficient? I mean, the, the, the <laughs> chief justice that he fired, um, he was approved by the Senate, and the president sat on it. It was not until he went on medical leave that his vice president um, swore him in. Right, and now you have a an act, well, a, a substantive chief justice is fired or at least removed from office uh, uh, temporarily. A new one is appointed within 24 hours, and within 24 hours, an electoral appeal. I mean, it's, 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 what is going on? You give the impression that you, you are seeking extra political, uh, um, well, extra normal political processes uh, uh, to win because the, 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 the judicial arm is the final arbiter. Almost every single election since 1999, it has been appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. We had that even in 1979. So to do that is terrible. But the second part, which 
Okay. He, he has to at some point admit to that. Yeah. Is that he has used the security apparatus to intimidate his opponents. Okay. Has- Clement, we got to leave it right there. Clement Adibe is professor of political science at DePaul University, and we'll keep our eye on the elections and the judicial challenges to the elections uh, this weekend in Nigeria. Thanks a lot for joining us, Clement Adibe. Coming up after the break, we're going to chat about all the Iran news. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There's been enough news about Iran the last couple of days to fill anybody's news feed. Espionage, missile sabotage, plenty of good old-fashioned regime change talk from Israel's prime minister and Rudy Giuliani. With me is Sarita Parsi. He's founding president of the National Iranian American Council. He's author most recently of Losing an Enemy. It's about the Iran-U.S. nuclear talks. Uh, Thanks for joining me, Trita. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, all the news seems to basically be revolving around the 65 countries that the U.S. has uh, urged to get together in Warsaw yesterday and today and talk about Middle East stability. Of course, Iran is not there. There's lots of talk about Iran at the conference. And the U.S. and its allies seem to be mobilizing an, an anti-Iran coalition here. What do you think about the effort? Uh, It is doomed to fail, and I think it's almost not even intended to succeed. This idea of creating an anti-Iran coalition in the Middle East is not a new one. It's something the U.S. has tried to do for many years, already back in the early 1990s. This was uh, an attempt that was made uh, very much then based, again, on the idea of creating peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. It failed under those circumstances in which the United States actually was at the apex of its power. This is, you know, right at the unipolar moment uh, and at a moment when the Iranians were much, much weaker than they are today. Today, the U.S. is not only weaker, the U.S. is somewhat isolated internationally because many countries refused to attend. Some of them who did attend sent much lower level representations in order to signal their objection to the purpose of the conference. And many essentially showed up because they were afraid that they were going to be um, uh, upsetting the Trump administration too much and they didn't want to have to deal with its wrath. So the likelihood that it could succeed today when it couldn't under much more favorable circumstances is just very, very difficult to see. Today, Mike Prince, the uh, U.S. vice president, uh, talked about some of the European allies of the United States and accused them of trying to break American sanctions against Iran's murderous revolutionary regime. Obviously, the Europeans have created this uh, new financial mechanism, uh, a sort of barter system to do trade with Iran, and the Europeans... Uh, most of the big countries didn't send big representatives to this conference. Um, what's happening between the U.S. and the Europeans here? What's happening is that the United States is isolating itself because we have to take a step back and remember this nuclear deal that is the basis for the trade between the Europeans and Iran today was a nuclear deal that the U.S. was a pivotal country negotiating and securing. It was then adopted by a UN Security Council resolution 15 to 0. 
the United States is today in violation of that UN Security Council resolution. And it is trying to punish countries that are abiding by that resolution. It's a rather bizarre situation. I cannot think of another example of the United States acting against international law in this manner in the last 60, 70 years. Uh, and the Europeans are doing everything they can to protect the trade that is now legal, that they're allowed to do against what essentially is illegal American sanctions imposed by the Trump administration in defiance of this UN Security Council resolution. And the idea of creating alternative financial transaction systems uh, has actually existed for some time, but it's not until now that the Europeans have mustered a political will to do so. And it's solely because of the way the Trump administration has been treating them. Essentially, the Trump administration has incentivized these allies of the United States to do, go and create an alternative financial transaction system, one that could actually be in competition with the one that the United States uh, essentially is in control over. Is there uh, the criticism of the uh, new financial mechanism? Is it's that it's so um, it's kind of difficult to use? Some small players might use it, medium-sized players, but really big volume players won't lose it, and it won't amount to much. Uh, what do you make of that? I think that's uh, a very legitimate criticism, or at least a fear that ultimately um, the Europeans have moved too slowly on this. Um, and what it can do at this stage is probably only provide uh, ways for smaller companies to be able to engage in this type of a trade. It's not clear whether it can be big enough to actually handle the much, much bigger um, uh, investments and other trade that the Iranians essentially were promised as a result of this deal. But the, if you ask the Europeans, their answer is, look, we're taking it step by step. This is a big endeavor. We want to move it somewhat, um, not slowly, but at a tempo that doesn't uh, beget some form of a very aggressive response from the Trump administration. And we want to focus first on the humanitarian trade, medicine, food, things of that nature that will help uh, the Iranians from avoiding the type of uh, medicines shortages that existed back in 2011 and 2012 when the Obama administration sanctioned them. I'm talking with Trita Parsi. He's founding president of the National Iranian American Council, and he's author most recently of Losing an Enemy. It's about the Iran nuclear talks. And I wanted to ask a question about the Trump administration's, uh, it seems like, deep sincerity about this policy. Uh, the Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor are people who, uh, you know, have long advocated for uh, regime change in Iran. They are aligned with uh, Israel's prime minister, who's been talking about this at the conference. And uh, the president's son-in-law was there, and he was uh, – taking 45 minutes of questions today about the Middle East peace plan that he's been trying to broker. Uh, they, they seem deeply invested in their interest in, in the Middle East and what they're doing. Uh, obviously, the president's personal lawyer, Rudolph Giuliani, is outside the, the meeting place, and he's uh, talking before the Mujahideen Kalk, an organization that has been trying to 
do regime change in Iran for years. Uh, what do you? What about the you know seriousness of intent of the U.S. leadership right now? It's they are all on the same page. They're all rowing the same boat. They all want to go after Iran. Yes, and I think the the intent here is part of the reason why you're seeing so much division with Europeans. The Europeans simply do not trust the Trump administration when they say that this conference actually was not about Iran, it was about stability in the Middle East. Uh, 90% of everything that was being said at the conference was not about ISIS, it was, it was about Iran. And they just simply disagree with this very simplistic analysis that the Trump administration is putting forward, which is that all of the problems of the region essentially come back to Iran. If you resolve the problem with Iran, everything in the Middle East will be just absolutely splendid and fantastic. Um, And because they don't trust the administration's intent, they fear that what the administration actually is trying to do is to move things towards a military confrontation. It does not get any better when Bibi Netanyahu gives an interview in which he says that we're coming together here very transparently, he said, because the Arab states in Israel have a common interest in a war with Iran. Uh, Under these circumstances, I think it's quite understandable that a whole set of different countries are not attending this meeting and are very suspicious of the intent of the the Trump administration, because the last thing they want to see is yet another military confrontation in the Middle East. You've been writing about the historical pull and tug between a Middle East peace plan and uh, rapprochement with Iran. And uh, right now we've got uh, Jared Kushner out there trying to roll out a peace plan for uh, for the Israelis and Palestinians. And it, to a lot of listeners, it probably doesn't seem to have much to do with Iran. But can you have a, can you make a peace plan work without uh, Iran helping out there or at least uh, acquiescing to it? Um, I think the Iranians have significant spoiler power. But the question is also why would they use their spoiler power to undermine this? And in the past, The reason why they have used their spoiler power to undermine and very aggressively seek to undermine the peace process to the extent of supporting groups that are on the U.S.'s terrorist list was because very explicitly the objective was to create peace in order to isolate Iran. When there has been efforts to make peace and and the Iranian dimension was not emphasized or it was not sold as an attempt to isolate Iran, such as the Camp 2 talks in 2000, then you saw a completely different profile by the Iranians in which they were actually not at all particularly active in opposing it. Today, once again, the idea of selling peace is very much linked to the idea of containing and isolating and defeating Iran. And this is an argument that is being used in order to get the Saudis and others to buy into this because their main priority right now is Iran. And essentially the Netanyahu government is seeking to find a way to get the Saudis to just simply accept the Israeli position in order to have the Saudis, the Israelis and the U.S. team up on Iran. Uh, And under those circumstances, um, it is quite likely that the Iranians will act against this in order to avoid um, uh, such a coalition from being able to be effective. But I think part of the reason why they're not doing too much right now is precisely because the prospects of this coalition being built is very, very low 
Turkey was not there. Many key countries of the region were not there. The Palestinians were not there. They're completely rejecting this. The Europeans were there, but they were there to criticize the events. So under those circumstances, I think the Iranians are probably going to lay back a little bit and not feel the same type of a pressure or danger that, as they did back in the mid-1990s. Is the real game for the Trump administration in the espionage realm? We saw a report in the New York Times that talked about the Trump administration reviving attempts to sabotage the Iranian missile program. There was also this uh, story about uh, a, a U.S. naval officer who defected to Iran. There seems to be a lot of espionage news uh, all going down at the same time. Well, what is really fascinating is why is the administration leaking this information? Uh, there's been a, essentially a dirty intelligence war going on between the U.S. and Iran for quite some time. Uh, and some of these cases, such as the case with the naval officer who's been accused of spying, that apparently yeah, I think it's Air Force, to, yeah. Uh, Air Force uh, um, happened back in 2013. I think part of the reason why a lot of this information is coming out now, such as the fact that why would the U.S. reveal that it's actively sabotaging the Iranian uh, missile program is precisely because they want to signal the Israelis, the Saudis, as well as some of Donald Trump's very, very big billionaire donors that, look, we're doing a lot. Uh, Yes, the regime has not fallen yet, but we're doing everything we can and we are hurting them. And remember, some of the most important donors to Donald Trump, some of the biggest donors to the Republican Party right now are people like Sheldon Adelson, who has made absolutely no um, um, secret of his desire to see the United States take out Iran militarily. He even at one point suggested that the United States should preemptively use nuclear weapons against Iran. And is there something uh, also at play with Rudy Giuliani and his uh, unusual demonstration outside of this uh, event where 65 countries are are meeting? And he came and spoke again in front of the Mujahideen Kalk, who who pays him uh, as one of uh, their lobbyists. Uh, it's, It's really an unusual scene there. Yeah, uh, for the idea that uh, the swamp in Washington should be drained and cleaning up some of this corruption, we have clearly gone in the opposite direction because here you have the most high-level profile of the president speaking and getting paid by an organization that just up until a couple of years ago was on the U.S.'s terrorist list and who has 30, 40 years of experience, deep experience with terrorism. Uh, speaking at their event, essentially declaring um, regime change in Iran as the priority and then denying that that is the U.S.'s official policy. It's not a mystery why so many countries are not trusting the Trump administration when it is so blatantly sending such mixed signals and seems to constantly be revealing its hand that it actually is looking for war and regime change while pretending that it is not. And the MEK uh, doesn't probably have a lot of supporters in Poland, but they seem to have bust in a bunch of people. They, they always do this. They usually have their annual meetings in Paris. They fly in a bunch of people on private jets, spend a tremendous amount of money. And there's been plenty of reporting suggesting that that money is coming from Saudi Arabia. But they can't fill the room because they really have no support in Iran or in the Iranian community outside of the country uh, of Iran itself. So they end up 
busing in Slovaks and Poles and others offering them a free trip to Paris. In the case in Warsaw, they were busing in uh, high school students from uh, Slovakia in order to make sure that their um, um, their demonstration looked bigger than it really was. And it, it tells you something about how little actual support exists for these type of policies. Why would you need to do this if you actually have support? Trita Parsi is founding president of the National Iranian American Council. He's author most recently of Losing an Enemy about the Iran nuclear talks. Thanks again for joining us and talking about all the news about Iran. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about our Science and Power Politics series, and we'll discuss museums and imagining a post-colonial museum. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. This week, we bring you a series on the intersection of science and power politics. And where do people go for science? The museum. But fields like anthropology, natural history, paleontology, the sciences we most often encounter in museums, are deeply tied to the history of empire. Siraj Rasool is a leading critic of the ideologies that museums put forward. He's director of the African Program in Museum and Heritage Studies at the University of the Western Cape. Worldview's Julian Haida spoke with him from South Africa. So, Siraj, museums are these repositories of scientific knowledge. And we think of them as places where one goes to learn about that which is objective scientific truth, but you argue that museums nonetheless have people behind them. Can you tell me a little bit about um, what what people should be seeing between the placards and categorizations when they walk into a museum? Museums are not merely neutral, objective collections or institutions of display. They are marked by orders of knowledge. In fact, what we mean by colonialism preeminently is not just a certain time and place in the past denoting a certain relationship of power between societies. Colonialism, or more properly spoken, coloniality, refers to the knowledge systems that were put in place through colonialism and imperialism and that have been enduring ever since knowledge systems that have carved up the world into different categories and systems, and the museum is organized around those categories. And so as much as you will find what seems to be innocuous and innocent collections of 
multiple species of animals and plants that lived a long time ago and that we know about from the fossil record, but that museums are the place that you go to to learn about colonized people whose lives have been frozen in time and they are turned into people without history through the Natural History Museum. What are the consequences of the separation of human beings in the museum into those with history and those without history for the project of making a democratic society in which some people are placed in cultural history and other people are placed in natural history. What seems to be an objective order of knowledge, a place of education of the wonderful varieties of animals and plants and life forms in the world. In fact, it does this not just through classification, it does this through the technique of the diorama in which habitats of animals have been replicated through the display of indigenous people. Now, South Africa is a very interesting society with a colonial history because as a settler colony is marked by a fossil complex because the fossil itself is not just neutral. Um, even when we look at the history of how the dinosaur was invented, it is very interesting how fossils and the duty of preservation in a settler society that befell communities of those of the settler population. Uh, what do you mean by dinosaurs being invented? I mean, there's a beautiful book by a scholar from Chicago by the name of Tom Mitchell called The Last Dinosaur Book, in which he examines the way in which the concept of the dinosaur uh, was invented, was created. Of course, there are these remains that are unearthed piece by piece, and then are placed together in an, invent an invention of what an ancient animal form looked like. And he looks at the earliest forms of dinosaur. And apparently, the concept of the dinosaur is completely unscientific today, and it doesn't really live in the university. It only really lives on in the museum and in the world of popular culture. So I think people visit museums and they look at objects that have been dated to be millions of years old and say, well, these objects um, you know, predate any sort of history that, as, as we know it. And, and how is it that the, these objects uh, can, can you know, communicate um, colonial relations if they're just objects that are behind glass? The South African case is even more fascinating because South Africa has so-called fossils that are still alive. South Africa was deemed to be the home of the living fossil of the living species that are to be found encrusted in the rock. And, and three examples of these miraculous species that are still alive are the coelacanth, uh, the cycad. So you have a fish, a plant, and that section of humanity that, colonial, that colonialism labeled as Bushmen. As the still, as the remarkably still living immediate ancestor of human beings. And so the whole project 
of preservation became geared towards saving the records of these species that were still alive but were on their way to their extinction. And that gave the the settler population in South Africa and its scientific capacity. As South Africa became a nation at the beginning of the 20th century, the special duty of preservation. So when people discovered uh, uh, something like the coelacanth and realized that it was alive, whereas they had previously thought because they'd seen, you know, uh, fossilized in stone these, these particular species, they hesitated to declassify that as a, as a, as a fossil and, 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 and continued to refer to like a time machine to the past that shouldn't be? Yeah, it was more or less like that. I suppose we, we need to understand how the discourse of the Natural History Museum works and how it relates to other kinds of collecting and display institutions of so-called nature, you know, like zoos and botanical gardens, uh, concepts of conservation of species, but the conservation of biodiversity. Of course, a museum, a natural history museum is different because the natural history museum supposedly works with the preservation of species that are dead and that have been rendered exhibitable and displayable through various techniques, but whose most important task is to preserve these species for as long as possible for future generations, but to also concentrate on those aspects that are peculiar to the local situation. So in Cape Town, from which I'm speaking at the moment, there's been a very interesting project on that species of animal in South Africa, which is called the quagga, and which was deemed to be extinct. And you will find the quagga as one of the examples of recently extinct animals in different natural history museums around the world. Well, of course, they discovered that essentially a quagga is a zebra. It's actually not a separate species. So what I'm trying to argue is that the Natural History Museum is a special kind of cultural history museum. So to work with that distinction between nature and culture is kind of artificial, that our concept of nature is very much culturally constructed, what its boundaries are, what what the relationships are between humans and nature. These are very constructed processes. And so if you go to a society like Australia, which has its own indigenous people, a settler colonial society, indigenous people are deemed to be part of nature. And so Australia was, is, gets to be regarded as untouched by human beings because all it had before that were indigenous people who were part of the fauna and flora of society. And so these are the kinds of politics of knowledge questions that we must be alert to, that we must be interested in, and that we must learn to read when we go to the museum. When we go to the Natural History Museum, we don't just encounter interesting information and beautiful displays of of species, but we encounter a politics of knowledge. 
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm talking with Siraj Rasool. He's professor of history and director of the African Program in Museum and Heritage Studies at the University of the Western Cape. Um, I want to ask a question. You alluded to this before, but I think a lot of people think of colonialism, the act of colonizing as something that is extractive, something that has to do with plunder. Could you talk about the relationship between museums and extracting objects from other places? There isn't a singular colonialism. There isn't a singular meaning or experience or a universal experience of colonialism. As much as we think we can, that it might be possible to distill the key features of this historical experience. But, you know, just much as on the African continent, there have been different forms of colonialism. Uh, colonialism of European settlement was just one type. But where colonialism meant coming of commodity relations, the disruption of pre-colonial societies, the harnessing of pre-colonial people into forms of labor that were directed towards the production of cash crops and other kinds of commodities, say, in mining towards the market. And at, for, at a certain point, that required formal political control by European powers over African societies. And so the entire African continent was carved up at the Berlin Conference like an African cake. After centuries of slavery, and the 19th century experience of so-called legitimate trade, in which African societies were slowly incorporated into a world economy. Now, today, there probably isn't a single society anywhere in the world, maybe except for deep in the Amazon, that is not interconnected with the whole world, that is not, hasn't been drawn into the international commodity system. And, and so colonialism might have that meaning of being a certain phase of the development of empires that required formal political domination. But despite that having come to an end, despite countries like Ethiopia never having been colonized, all societies were drawn into relations of coloniality. Of course, we associate colonialism with, as you put it, violence and extraction and of theft and of plunder. And that is the way in which we think of museums. That is the way the public discourse has developed about museum collections as having been plundered. But one of the most fundamental forms of colonialism is this order of knowledge is the way the world was carved up into disciplines and into ways of framing society. So African people are tribal. African people are deemed to have rhythm. African societies are marked by the wild, by wildness, by animals. So these are the kinds of discursive ways in which coloniality constructs societies through a set of codes and conventions and images. So colonialism is something that we need to think about as something that is enduring, that marks all of us, that marks the way we think about ourselves and about all the people of the world. Now, 
How would you imagine a utopic museum or a field of anthropology or paleontology or any sorts of these organizations of knowledge, how do you imagine the museum decolonized? There are no big magic formulae for how to do this. But they have to do with creating forums of questioning, of interrogation, not just of imbibing scientific knowledge as neutral, but of being exposed to ways of participating in questioning the order of the world, in questioning the disciplines, the classificatory systems that we have inherited. Because you cannot, in a democratic society, have some people studied by the anthropologists and other people studied by the historians. Anthropology is not a category through which you can make new people. You know, the museum is an institution for making people. The museum is the place that makes people, makes people as citizens. It makes people as members of the nation. It makes people as critical citizens. And that is what the museum needs to do. Museum that we need to work towards, to resource, to build, is not one that instructs people in who they are and what they have to protect but it has to make them critical of science. It has to make them pose questions of the authority of the scientist and of the academic. Because we are talking about the museum being an institution of empowerment, of enabling people to ask not just empirical questions, but to ask questions about the politics of knowledge itself. Siraj Rasool is professor of history and director of the African Program in Museum Heritage Studies at the University of the Western Cape in South Africa. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and speaking with us about the museum and, and of all these fields of scientific knowledge. It's a pleasure talking to you and your listeners. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll, conti- we'll continue our se- series on science and power politics with a conversation about engineering and technological advancement. Hope you can join us for that tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum, Julian Haida, and Char Dastin. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Line takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Line wherever you get your podcasts.